So uh, this morning, we're, we're getting back to Psalms. I know it was just a couple weeks ago that we were there, but um, I'm excited to, to go through another Psalm with you guys. But um, I don't want you to view this as separate from the sermon series that Chet has been doing with us already. Um, we're only two weeks into his sermon series on the book of Acts, and I'll say that God has already been stirring my heart, in my heart, a deep conviction for, for his mission, for Christ's mission. Um, I have been incredibly blessed by the last two weeks, um, and I hope the, the same can be said for many of you. I mean, just, just take a moment to think about what Christ's mission is. It's incredible. We get to be part of something that is so much bigger and better than ourselves. Uh, we get to be messengers of the greatest message ever shared, uh, just period. And it's a message that's literally saving thousands upon thousands of lives. We get to be conduits through which the Holy Spirit does remarkable and miraculous things. Uh, as Christians, we are part of a vast and supernatural movement led by the greatest and most powerful being, whoever was and whoever will be. How can a reminder of that not give us a renewed sense of purpose and focus in our lives, what we're pursuing, the things that we do? I, am, I personally am so thankful for how the Lord has been using Chet's preaching in the book of Acts in my heart to convict and enliven me. Um, to his mission. Um, and again, I really, I really hope that that's true for others. Um, an area of joy is coming back to my life that honestly and sadly has been dormant for a while. Um, and of course, that begs many questions in my mind. Why was that joy dormant in me in the first place? Why was my passion for Christ's mission waning to begin with? I've been asking myself that question a lot over the last two weeks, and I, I do think it's a worthwhile question to ask. I think we should all ask ourselves that question, whether we have been moved by acts so far or whether we haven't. What was or may even still be causing your passion for gospel ministry to fade? Now, I know that the answer to that question is multifaceted for everyone. Our desires and feelings always have multiple layers to them, and our sin always has multiple contributing factors. Yet, I believe that for many of us, one of, if not the biggest reason we struggle to be passionate for gospel ministry is one very simple reason, and that's the fact that it's not about us. Think about it. The story's about Jesus, not us. The praise goes to him, not us. The work is ultimately accomplished by the Spirit, not us. So, therefore, all the glory goes to God, not us. Now, please tell me that I'm not the only one who struggles with that, at least a little bit. I know I'm not the only one who wrestles with Christ's mission because, as I said, it's simply not about me when, in my flesh, I want it to be. If we're going to work for Christ's mission, we oftentimes, at least, at the very least, want to be able to take credit for what we've done towards that aim, towards that goal. If someone repents and believes in Jesus Christ, I want to say that it was my eloquence or my intellect that compelled him or her to believe. If people's hearts are turned towards Christ as a response to my efforts, I want to say that it was my strength and power that changed their lives, not the Spirit's. I want to feel accomplished. I want to feel strong, like I did something. The reality is, though, that gospel ministry is meant to be done by weak people. 
It's meant to be done by those who realize they cannot change hearts or do what the Holy Spirit alone can do. If we want to be passionate about and effective in our ministry, we must start by humbling ourselves to our weaknesses and limitations. We must repent of our pride and begin to see the joy that comes from living in the shadow of Christ and his spirit. And that is where today's text comes in. If we want to find joy and humility before Christ, a great way to do that is by beholding his majesty. As we soak in his majesty more, oftentimes our pride diminishes and our passion for his mission and glory is enhanced. We're going to be looking at Psalm 8 today um, to do that, to soak in that majesty. Um, And if you want to, you can turn to page 450 in the Pew Bibles. That's where you'll find it. Now, this psalm is a psalm of praise. It's a hymn of praise, actually. Um, David, who's the psalmist in this case, is seeking to astound us with God's remarkable majesty. He wants us to marvel at who he is and what he has done. But notice, um, as we're about to read it, the way that David does that, you'll want to pay close attention to how um, how David compels us to marvel at God's majesty we'll see that the most striking aspect of this psalm is in its focus on who God reveals his majesty through. So follow along with me as I read Psalm 8. It says this, To the choir master, according according to the Giddith, a psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Pride kills us and sets us on a path of futility. Instead of seeking God's glory, we're prone to seek to do things that benefit only us and make us look better. We seek to be strong and competent and powerful. But here in this psalm, we see David injects poison into our pride. He does it by showing who God reveals his majesty through, as I said earlier. It's not through the strong and mighty and self-sufficient that get to display God's glory and majesty. They'll be brought low and vanquished as his enemies, as we'll see. Instead, it's the weak and humble who will shine with the splendor of God's majesty. The point of the psalm is this. The majesty of God shines brightest through weakness. With that said, it's my prayer and hope this morning that we'll all begin to more deeply rejoice in our weaknesses because of that truth. The majesty of God shines brightest through weakness, not strength. We are not meant to be self-sufficient people who expect our own strength and competencies to glorify us. We're meant to humbly acknowledge our weaknesses and rejoice in the grace that is given to us by God. That is our glory. It is far better glory 
than the glory that we try to seek for ourselves. As we make our way through the psalm, we will see just how incredible God's majesty is, and then we'll see who gets to partake of that. We'll finish then by looking at how the New Testament actually interprets this psalm and the incredible ways that it points to Christ and his own journey through weakness to glory. So first, we're going to look at God's incomparable majesty. We're going to look at how just incredible it is. Before we even get into the content of Psalm 8, though, we see, um, and I intentionally read this, the inscription before verse 1 already begins to set the stage for the tone of this psalm. This is a hymn that, that was to be sung according to the Giddith. If you're like me, when I first read this, I was wondering, what's a Giddith? I've never heard that term before. I've seen it in the Bible, but I have no idea what that is. So I looked it up. And many Bible scholars believe, we're not absolutely sure, but many believe that it was actually an instrument that produced a particularly joyful sound. So think more like a violin than a cello, perhaps. Um, It doesn't produce a sound that's as contemplative or melancholy as other instruments do. It's meant to elicit praise and excitement with those who are singing along with it. David wants this psalm to be sung by hearts that are made happy and glad by the truths contained in it we already are seeing that God's majesty is meant to be good and joy-inducing for us. It's not something to fear or disregard. It's something to praise him for and to desire. And we see that abundantly, we see that even more abundantly clear in the bookend verses of the psalm. Uh, They let us know exactly what we're going to be singing about. And they basically say the same thing. Look with me at verse 1. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now, verse 9, if you take a look at that, um, simply restates the first half of verse 1. Here we have David the psalmist. He's first proclaiming the name of God, which is Yahweh. He's affirming that he is our Lord, as in the God of Israel. And just stop for a moment to consider the fact that like, we get to call God our God. He's not someone else's. He's ours. Um, and then he finishes by extolling how majestic his name is. Now, David is doing far more than just telling God that he's got a cool name, though. He's extolling God himself. His very being is majestic. He is full of splendor and beauty and magnificence. He's wonderful to behold. That's what David is getting at here. And he goes even further than that, too. Not only is God majestic, but he has also set his glory above the heavens. What does that mean, though? What David is getting at here is he's saying that God is so majestic, so splendid, so magnificent, that all of creation cannot contain it. His majesty is incomparable and supreme because there is nothing that comes even remotely close to being as vast or as abundant or as great as it is, as he is. If you took everything in all of creation and compared it to his majesty, it still wouldn't match up. No being or object can equal or surpass God and his majesty. He dwarfs all things. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. It says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, 
the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So we're going to focus on this passage more a little bit later, but I want, I want us to focus now on a small part of verse 3. Look back at verse 3. The heavens and everything in it, um, um, they're what? What does this say? They're the work of God's fingers. They aren't even big enough to be considered the work of his hands. They're, they're only the works of his fingers. God is so unimaginably great and powerful that the entire universe is but a miniature construction made with his fingertips. His strength is t- truly incomprehensible. David loves to use visuals to convey the shocking truths that he's talking about. He does that throughout the Psalms. And this is a perfect example of that. Now, I, I, I like a lot of those videos. Have you guys ever watched those videos that attempt to kind of put our size to scale in comparison to the scope of the universe? Um, they, I've seen a couple of them where it like starts just like looking at a person and then it kind of zooms out and you see the city they're in and then you see the whole earth and um, then you see the earth with the sun and how much smaller the earth is compared to the sun and then zooms out to the solar system and then the galaxy and it just keeps going further and further until you see the whole visible universe and note that I'm saying the visible universe because we can't even see the full extent that the universe reaches. Um, Our technology doesn't even allow us to see how far it actually goes. Um, But these videos are just incredible. Um, They, the point of them is that they show that the universe, for us, functionally, it's endless. We could never reach the end. Um, It is beyond our ability to even try to understand its vastness. Yet, God is still infinitely bigger and greater than the universe. Think about it in terms of light. This was helpful for me to think about. All of the light produced by every star, every chemical reaction that has combustion and things like that, all of them in the universe can, cannot keep away darkness. There's still darkness. There's still, like even during the daytime, there's shadows and there's um, There's darkness inside. But if God's majesty was visible like light was, there would be no place that you could escape its infinite brightness. That's just how, I don't know, that just helps me put into terms something that you can't even comprehend. But it's just incredible to think about. I know it's hard to fathom such things. Our brains are finite after all. It's impossible for us to try to comprehend something that's infinite. Um, So one thing that also helps me is to try to put it into other terms that I can better grasp. Think about something that's remarkably beautiful to you. Um, I'll admit, I'm a sucker for sunsets. Um, I think about something that's um, like when the sun's going down and the sky is a bunch of hues of like blue and gold and red and purple and just has all these different colors and then throw in some cool looking clouds. I'm just blown away by sunsets, um, they, they cause me to just stop in my tracks and just marvel at what God has created. Um, another thing that blows me away is mountains. I love mountains. Um, a breathtaking mountain jutting up out of an otherwise flat landscape with like snow-capped peaks and has forests that blanket its lower slopes. 
Um, I, could, I could stare at that all day and not grow bored. It's, it's incredible. Um, that's me, though. I know some people aren't really as amazed by nature, but think about for you, what is it that you just find remarkable, that you just want to look at just because it's beautiful and marvelous to you? Um, I mean, it, it, it could even be your spouse. Um, maybe you look at your wife and wonder how God could create someone so wonderful. It pains you to be away from her, and you love seeing her face when you get home each day. Now, what, I'm, what I want you to notice here is that we all appreciate that God makes things that are beautiful. He has given all of us a capacity to love and to cherish things that are marvelous. We want to be near them. We want to behold them and simply be in their presence because they elicit joy in us just because of their presence. That's what it means to experience something majestic. Now, getting back to Psalm 8, David is telling us that no matter how majestic something is to you, it utterly pales in comparison to God and his majesty. That is how remarkable he is. That is how good and precious it is is to be near and to even display his majesty. No experience we could have is better than that. Our greatest desire should be to behold and partake of that majesty. It is with that attitude and perspective that David is starting this psalm in. That's the attitude and, in a sense, posture or perspective he wants us to have. He wants us to long for that incomparable majesty. He doesn't stop there, though. We can actually, we actually can behold it even now to agree, and God, God promises that even more in the future. The way God reveals it, though, is quite unusual and unexpected, in my opinion. Now, let's consider that unusual aspect of his majesty now. And David actually makes that transition in his own thinking with a pretty strange comment in verse 2. Look with me at verse 2 now. It says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So where is this comment even coming from? He was just talking about God's glory and majesty being so great that the universe couldn't contain them. And now he's talking about how people are being defeated by babies. What's going on? Now, I'll be honest, I'd like to think that David is talking about a literal army of babies here. I like to picture that. I'm just imagining like this huge horde of babies dressed up with armor and swords and going to battle against this nation of men and they're just annihilating them. I don't know, I just think it's hilarious. I just think about like the babies in the church here, like Ellie and Edda and like Arya just like going to war and defeating this massive foe. It's crazy. I'm, I'm getting distracted though. But anyway, obviously that's not what David means. That's not what he's getting at. So what is he getting at? The point that David is trying to make is regarding how God reveals his majesty in creation, especially and specifically in human beings. God has incomparable majesty and glory, as we've already seen, but he has a particular affinity for choosing to manifest that in the weak and lowly. He chooses to reveal it not in the strong, but in those who are needy and dependent upon him. God supports the underdog in a sense, and David of all people knows this. I imagine as he was writing this, he was recalling in his own mind his own battle against Goliath. Uh, when he was just a boy, someone who was far weaker and less skilled than Goliath in combat. combat. Yet, despite being outmatched in nearly every way, he defeated him. 
Or maybe he was thinking of stories of Gideon, who God sent to war with a unbelievably small army um, so that the odds were actually stacked against them. And yet, who was victorious? Gideon was. Of course, we also have the story of the Exodus. God used Moses, a timid, fearful man, to bring the Egyptians, who was the mightiest nation in the world at the time, to their knees, and he was able to overcome them so that every single one of the Israelite slaves was freed. Now look again with me at verse 2. What does God do? Why does God do this? He does it to still the enemy and the avenger. We see the same idea conveyed by God in those stories that I just mentioned. God said this to Gideon when he was telling him to make his army smaller. He said, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. And in Exodus, we see this. It said, Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. God even said that he had specifically raised up Pharaoh and hardened his heart so that God's power, as seen through the plagues and his wrath, could be displayed and proclaimed over all the earth. God's majesty is incomparable, but it is also unusual because of who he reveals it through. God intentionally displays his power and might through those who are weak to silence his enemies and reveal to the world that he is the one who truly has all power and glory. He wants no one to boast as though the victory comes at their hands and in their strength. He wants everyone in all of creation to know that it is his strength that is supremely mighty. In fact, it goes even further than that. There's no strength or power that anyone has that does not issue forth from God himself in the first place. All power and strength that we have is allotted to us by God, and he can give and take it away whenever he pleases. Think of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel and how he was humiliated by God and later restored to power, specifically so that he could learn that what he had, the vast nation and power that he had, was given to him by God. It was not in his own strength that he achieved it. We have nothing that was not given to us by God. In Psalm 8, this is what David is ultimately getting at in verse 2. Can you see your weaknesses? Can you see your own dependence upon God? Are you acutely aware of that yet as we're looking through this passage? It might be uncomfortable, but David actually wants you to be in that place. He wants us to see our insignificance and frailty apart from God. In fact, he takes us even deeper into that. Look with me at verses three and four again. It says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? David is comparing us to the rest of God's creation, and he's rightly wondering why God would even notice us at all. We've already spent time considering the vastness of the universe, so let's get back to that for a moment. David knew that the stars and the moon were far larger than we are. Even during his time, people knew that objects appeared smaller the farther away they were. So the stars and moon were actually much larger than they appeared. With his limited knowledge, even David recognized that we are a very small part of creation, hardly worth the notice and attention of God. 
Yet, with all that we know now about the size of the universe and how we don't even know how vast it actually is, how much more than David should we recognize that? He's trying to evoke in us a deep sense of our smallness and triviality within creation. Do you feel it? Oddly enough, though, David's not doing that to cause us grief. He's not causing us to despair in that reality. Yes, we are infinitesimally small and insignificant within creation. Yet, as the psalmist says, God is mindful of us. And not only that, he actually cares for us. In the same moment that he is orchestrating the movement of every atom in the universe, God is giving you his care and concern. That is unbelievable. Our smallest is contrasted with God's love for us to show how remarkable that love really is. Our weakness and frailty does not make us less worthy of God's attention. In fact, in a sense, it's the opposite. God displays his majesty all the more brilliantly through his love for us because we are weak and insignificant and unworthy of his attention and focus, not despite it. That is the point that David is getting at here. Our value in the eye of God is not dependent upon how powerful or self-sufficient we are, If it was, we would be nothing in his eyes because we are so small, but we aren't. Praise God that we're not viewed that way by him. David is using a powerful image to show us how truly amazing this reality is here. So let me ask you this. Why is it that we prize power and self-sufficiency so much? What do you respect more when you see it in others? So consider these two things humble acknowledgement of weakness or fierce determination to succeed that almost borders on stubbornness. I know for myself, I tend to to respect in others that fierce determination. I tend not to respect the acknowledgement of weakness. I see that as a sign of weakness. What do you prize most about yourself? Those moments when you finally ask someone for help or for those moments when you struggle a lot but eventually you're able to finish something on your own. You almost fail at it numerous times and you spin your wheels over and over, but you finally get it done. What do we tend to prize? I certainly don't prize moments where I'm asking for help. I hate to do that. If you're like me, you value self-sufficiency. You work so hard to keep everything under control in your life. You esteem strength and you long to be more independent and less reliant on other people. One of your greatest fears is to be perceived as needy or useless to those around you. This is, this is a really strong struggle for me. Friends, this is me that I'm describing. I don't want to be weak. I, I don't want to be needy or dependent on the support and help of others. It's evident in how slow I am to ask for help from people. It's evident in how fearful I become when I think I'm losing control over something in my life. Um, It's evident in the qualities that I like and dislike about myself and others. It's evident in so many aspects of myself. And I know I'm not the only one that's in that place. Consider those things about yourself. What do you really prize? Do you prize your ability to humble yourself before the Lord that you depend on? Or do you prize your self-sufficiency and ability to accomplish things in your supposed own strength, which isn't even actually your own strength? It's what God gives you. It has been so hard for me to read this psalm 
and to come to terms with the fact that accepting my weakness is not evil, but in fact, it's commendable in the eyes of God. Oftentimes, I'm prone to think that recognizing my own weakness will sap my joy, but David is showing us that it actually can produce joy. Um, It doesn't take it away. Being self-sufficient is not biblically praised. The reality is that, a person, that the person I want to be is not the type of person that God wants to use, if I'm honest with myself. The person that I want to be is not the type of person that God displays his glory and majesty through. A lot of the time, I admire Saul more than I admire David and his humility. I want what Pharaoh had more than I want to appreciate the qualities that I share with Moses. Don't struggle as I do. We are all small, insignificant creatures that can do nothing apart from God. And that is all right because he cares for us. He gives us what we need. He equips us to do what he calls us to do. Rely on him and not yourself. Imitate those around you who acknowledge their weakness and trust God and the work that he's doing through them. Repent of pride, as I need to be doing more, and rejoice in your weakness, knowing that through your weakness, God is able to manifest his power and strength all the more clearly. In our weakness, God is glorified, and that is the best thing we could hope for. As I said in the beginning, God's majesty shines brightest in weakness, in our weaknesses. Now, God's majesty is unusual, as we've been saying, because it seems at first glance as though he gives it to the least deserving of it. However, when we think that way, it's because we're not really looking at the greater redemptive story that we're actually a part of. So let's look now at that story and how God's majesty is finally Christocentric. Look with me at verses 5 through 8 in Psalm 8. It says, Yet you have made him, as in man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. You guys, this is unbelievable. David is saying that not only does God give us care and concern, but he also gives us his glory and his honor. He promises to set us over creation, that we would have dominion and authority over all living things. The incomparable majesty that we've talked about earlier will be given to us to such a degree that we'll be set apart from the rest of creation. We will be the crown jewel of God's creation. Now notice in verse 5, that, this, that it says that we were made a little lower than the heavenly beings. And as you'll notice, there's a note included with the phrase heavenly beings. Um, if you have one of the, pews in the or Bibles in the pew, I know it has it there. I want to draw your attention to that really quick. The note's at the bottom of the page. It's translated this way as heavenly beings um, in the ESV because of a discrepancy between the likely meaning of the Hebrew text and what the Septuagint actually says. So the most accurate and likely, likely meaning of the Hebrew phrase that's used here is actually, yet you have made him a little lower than God. As in, God has made us a little lower than himself. However, the Septuagint translates it as, yet you have made him a little lower than the angels. 
Now, one commentator said that he believed this translation in the Septuagint was due to modesty on the part of the Septuagint translators because they seemed it was overly bold for them um, to them for David to be saying that we are only a little less than God. Now, you're probably wondering why is Kyle bringing this up? I bring it up because it highlights how amazing our place in the order of creation actually is. David is being incredibly, incredibly bold here. It's like the, author, the translators couldn't even imagine David intending to mean something so great. Who are we to be given dominion and authority over what God has made? We're made by him too, after all. And who are we to have his majesty and glory and power to bestow to us? Any of it. We deserve none of it. We are weak, mortal, tiny creatures. We don't deserve dominion and authority, but he promises it to us. And yet, hopefully this passage makes you think about a different one. Remember Genesis 1? Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. David is echoing Genesis 1.26 here in Psalm 8. He's recalling God's role for Adam and stating that we will all be participants in that responsibility and honor. Now, this is all incredible and beyond anything that we could ever hope for. But the question we must ask ourselves is, how is this going to happen? How can God esteem us and honor us in such a way? The reality is that we are far more than just insignificant parts of creation. It's not simply that God is granting a small being more power. David quotes Genesis 1, but doesn't mention Genesis 3. He doesn't mention the fall. All of us are not just weak, small creatures. We are also rebellious sinners who actively work against God every day of our lives. We have merited his wrath for ourselves. Our righteous, just God cannot simply overlook that. These promises that David speaks of in Psalm 8, verses 5 through 8, cannot possibly be fulfilled until our sin is paid for. And we, being those weak creatures that we are, could never endure and finish serving the sentence from God that we merit for our sins. We face an eternity of God's wrath because of our sin, not an eternity serving as kings ruling over the earth. So how can we reconcile verses 5 through 8 with what we know about God, ourselves, and our sin? Will God's promises fail to be fulfilled? Will we instead just end up facing his wrath and his judgment? The answer is actually found in Hebrews 2. So why don't you turn there with me? That's on page 1001 in the Pew Bibles. I'm going to read uh, uh, Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 10. So follow along with me as I read that. I'll wait for, there's lots of pages flipping, so I'll wait for you guys to get there. Okay, so Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 10 says this. For it was not the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while 
for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This is huge because the author of the book of Hebrews is actually interpreting our passage from Psalm 8 for us. But notice who the verses from Psalm 8 are actually being fulfilled by in this passage. Um, Look again at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Psalm 8 is actually referring to Jesus Christ. He is the one, Hebrews is showing us that he's the one who is made a little lower than the angels or the heavenly beings, if you want to go with the translation in Psalm 8. He's crowned with glory and honor and given dominion over all things. You see, Psalm 8 is a messianic psalm that is, that it, and it is ultimately points to and is fulfilled by Christ. And that interpretation is confirmed by the New Testament writers. It is only true for us because it is first true for him. These promises can only be true for us because they are first true for him. Now, there's so much in the Hebrews passage that we could talk about, but the biggest thing that I want you to take away from it is how Christocentric or Christ-centered its understanding of Psalm 8 is. It's telling us that we're able to be recipients of the promises God made in Psalm 8, not because of our own merits and righteousness, not because of our own strength, but because of Jesus' sacrifice. He tasted death, the punishment for our sin, for, so that all who believe, all who have faith, don't have to face that punishment ourselves. He is the founder of our salvation, and he brings many sons to glory. And those sons are those who repent and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. Christ has been given all dominion and authority. And through our faith in him, we are united with him in that dominion and authority. We share in it with him. We share in his glory that he has received from the Father. That means that Christ made the promises of Psalm 8 possible for us by being the recipient of them himself and then uniting us with him so that we could join him in that glory and majesty. That is one of the most unbelievable gifts that Christ has given us. And think about it. Even Christ only received the glory and honor of the Father by going through weakness. Remember, God's majesty shines brightest through weakness. We see that even in Christ himself. Even the New Testament interpretations of this passage exhort us to embrace our weakness. Jesus is the premier example of that. It says that he had to suffer. Jesus Christ is fully God. He's just as vast and powerful and magnificent as the Father. Yet, he belittled himself by becoming a man. We cannot even begin to imagine the profound change that he must have experienced in going from supreme and infinite to small and limited. Jesus truly became weak in ways that we can't even begin to fathom. But he didn't stop there. He dealt with horrible ridicule and humiliation and suffering 
that came to him through his crucifixion. As Hebrews 2.10 says, though it is through that suffering that he was perfected, which means that he, was magnif- that he magnified his own righteousness um, all the more clearly by remaining obedient even in the midst of his suffering. Even Jesus had to be weak for the Father's majesty to be fully given to him. If that is true of our Savior and Lord, how is that not going to be true of us as well? Like he took up his cross in weakness, we must do the same. And that's what it requires for us to repent and believe and to trust by faith. The act of putting on faith and trusting in him for the forgiveness of our sins, trusting in his righteous rather righteousness rather than our own, that is a display of humility and weakness. But it is good, it is life-giving. It leads us to eternal life rather than destruction. Now, in Matthew 21, Jesus himself quoted Psalm 8-2. Matthew 21, verses 14 through 17 say this, And the blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out at the te- in the temple, uh, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Now the priests and scribes expected him to tell um, the children to stop, but he didn't. Instead, he saw that event as the actual fulfillment of Psalm 8 verse 2. This is huge because what Jesus was saying is that the praise due God for his majesty is due Christ as well. He knew it was going to be bestowed to him. Jesus saw the praise being lifted to God in Psalm 8 as praise that was being lifted to him as well. He is the majestic one for us to praise. So what does all this mean for us? It means that we can rejoice in knowing that our Savior, Jesus Christ, shares the incomparable and unusual majesty of the Father. And we get to be partakers of that majesty as well through our faith in him. It means that as we seek to live humble, Christ-centered lives, we partake of that majesty and reveal it to the world around us. Though we can't see it yet fully, we are glorifying Christ and putting his magnificence on display every time we faithfully walk in grace rather than our own strength and power. Jesus lived a life of dependence upon the Spirit, such as the life that we should desire and pursue for ourselves. A life of self-sufficiency is not a life that magnifies the glory of Christ. A life of humble reliance upon his grace is. God's love for us is not due to our usefulness or competence or the accomplishments that we achieve in this life. It is solely due to our union with Christ and his righteousness. We receive it by grace through faith. That is the gospel. And when we seek to ignore or suppress our weaknesses, we're undermining that very gospel. Now take heart when the battle against pride is difficult. Live in the shadow of Christ who entered his weakness and has been glorified. It is the most satisfying place to live because in his shadow you will behold God's majesty all the more brilliantly. You will taste of it more brilliantly. You will see it. The joy that you experience from it will be deeper and more satisfying. As I've been saying, the majesty of God truly does shine brightest in weakness. 
1 Corinthians 15 reminds us that the full manifestation of Christ's majesty and our sharing of it hasn't happened yet. Yet, when he returns and finally conquers death, his reign will be consummated and his majesty will be fully revealed for all to see. And that is when we will fully experience it and be partakers of it ourselves. Friends, we cannot even begin to imagine how incredible that will be. It is a It is greater and more marvelous than anything we could ever know in this life. And it will never end. It will be like what C.S. Lewis eloquently says at the end of his book, The Last Battle. I love this, this sentence, or these couple sentences. It highlights what we have to look forward to as Christians so much. He says this, But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Bow your heads with me in prayer.